Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tim Moen Show. Uh, I'm your host, Tim Moen, broadcasting to you from the bowels of Mordor, Western Canada, but currently under uh, under Sauron's rule, I guess you could say. We're trying to figure out what we can do about that. My guest today uh, may have the answer. Uh, Corey Morgan recently wrote the book, The Sovereignist's Handbook, Charting the Course to Western Independence. And uh, we're going to find out all about Canada's history with uh, Western disenfranchisement and the ebbs and flows of the secessionist movements out here in Western Canada. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for the invite. Oh, always good to chat. I, I was reading your book, and uh, one of the things that uh, really stu- struck me was that we've been getting a raw, raw deal right from the start out here in Western Canada. Isn't that right? You know, the, the thing yeah, that stood Yeah, and out- I gave some of that... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I gave some of that background in the book just to show that, I mean, the system has just been skewed right from the beginning of Confederation to serve Central Canada. It's just the nature of it. Right, right. And, uh, you know, you talk in there about um, how early settlers who moved out here under, I think, the Dominion Act, um, you know, they they were essentially indentured servants at feeding uh, resources back to back to Ottawa, back to the, the Laurentian elite in, in central Canada. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What exactly were they required to do? Sure. I mean, they were fed a bit of a bad deal. I mean, they were offered the free land like we saw in the West, and it was a good deal in that sense. But they got out here, and then they discovered that, well, most of the land actually within a, a good number of miles from any rail line was actually the property of, of Canadian Pacific Railway. That was part of the deal they cut to build it. So you had to have your homestead a good distance away from the rail line, which back then was, well, if you're moving your, your goods by horse and wagon, it's a, it's a tremendous disadvantage. Yeah. Uh, and then you had to get implements in. You had farm implements, tools. Well, you could get them from Montana far more cost effectively than the ones manufactured in Ontario. But the problem was they put a massive tariff on American input. So you were forced to buy your goods at an, an expanded price from central Canadian suppliers. And then you had to sell your grain back to central Canada and you paid the shipping on the grain up, you paid the shipping on your inputs in and you paid the shipping on the way. So yeah, indentured servage is a very close statement to what it was. I mean, they did have an opportunity, they did get rolling, but they were at a terrible disadvantage. And the system was set up just to funnel resources into central Canada. That was just how it was built. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think, as you point out, like at the founding of Confederation, I think uh, you point out in your book that something like 4% of the population lived in Western Canada. And so, uh, you know, it might have made sense back then uh, to to more heavily favor, let's say, central Canada as opposed to the 4% interest out West. Uh, but that's not the case anymore. Now we, we represent something like 30 or more percent um, so it might be a time time to switch that. But what what point um, during uh, I, I guess since Confederation have we seen secession that this sentiment of Western disenfranchise kind of start and grow wings and get organized? Yeah, well, I mean, we've always had it always from you know Louis Riel until I mean it's right. been a, a rough you know relationship from day one. Uh, we had the, the Social Credit Party that came out of the West. We had the Alberta United Farmers Association Party. It came out a lot of, all of those were based on regional grievances and, and an agricultural base, because that's where the bulk of things were at that time. 
I, I guess it wasn't really, though, when you were seeing full-blown secessionism coming about, though, in, until the late 70s, early 80s. The National Energy Program was kind of that, right. that final nail in the coffin. That's when it was proven that, hey, when when things start to be looking good for you kind of in the West as it was, because resource prices were up, Alberta, Saskatchewan, they're doing well. Central Canada just changes the rules, pulls the rug out from underneath you and takes your resources from you anyway. So it really gave a sense of futility to trying to work within the system and people started to really examine, well, how can we get the heck out of this? Right, right. You know, and as an Albertan, I can tell you right now, it certainly feels like we're getting a raw deal. Um, you know, we we have uh, these equalization payments that are kind of baked into the Constitution. Um, we have uh, a, a horrendous amount of income tax from Albertans going into the, the giant machine in Ottawa there. And then that those uh, tax dollars are lorded over our provinces as um, as incentives for doing the bid, bidding of uh, of the Laurentian elite, I guess. Again, you know, you, you talk in the book about healthcare and, and different things like that. Well, if we want those billions of dollars of healthcare that come out of Albertans pockets coming back to Alberta to pay for our healthcare, we got to play by the rules Ottawa uh, does and you mentioned in your book, I think about Kretchen threatening to pull the rug out from under, you know, with, withdraw uh, healthcare funding if uh, we start a private MRI clinic and different things like that in the '90s. Um, but <clears throat> all the ways we're getting screwed, Corey. Let, let's enumerate them. Uh, and tell me if I'm leaving anything out here. Uh, we we send all these tax dollars to Ottawa. It gets redistributed to the to the have-not provinces, and these are usually the provinces that. Um, have the most, uh, let's say, socialistic prop, uh, regulations. They, they uh, have the most prohibitions against developing their own resources. They have the, the you know, impoverished economies because of what the government's doing. Um, so, you know, the relatively free, uh, I guess, province of Alberta that prospers is then funding all these horrible programs in Alberta. And these said same provinces, these have-not provinces, then turn around and refuse to let us get our um, our oil out to market and um, and cut out, you know they're they're basically cutting slicing the hand that feeds. Um, I mentioned the healthcare thing. You know we're basically told as a province how we can administer healthcare in our province. W what am I missing? What are some of the other ways that we are aggrieved? Well, there's lots of ways. Uh, something I go into detail in the book. People forget about is is bilingual requirements, and and that's right. not. I don't have this big beef about it, like some people do, I guess, with a problem with French people. But the thing is, when they imposed it where pretty much every senior civil service position in the country has to be bilingual, you suddenly give Quebec a tremendous advantage on, uh, well, for starters, getting those jobs to begin with. And then, of course, controlling those areas of government and bureaucracy, whereas they're going to have a natural bias and inclination to make sure those serve uh, Quebec as, as well rather than, than the outlying uh, provinces. Um, the other areas is subsidies, which, you know, you and I as libertarians despise no matter who's giving them out anyways. Uh, I don't want to see a bunch of subsidies coming to Alberta Industries, but I really don't like seeing the preferential ones being given chronically to Bombardier or SNC-Lavalin yeah. or these companies that by all rights then should be able to stand on their own two feet and we give them money constantly. I, I, the, the list does go, go on and on. Every, you know, all roads lead to central Canada. And it's still basically just the hangover from the system being set up like that initially. I, part of what I try to go into in the book, and I, I've got to train myself with a bit too, is to not take it so personally yeah. and look at the system. It's the system, right? not the people, 
Don't get so upset with the people. Right, Don't, right. Well, you can get upset with the politicians, but they're playing the system. Like you mentioned the health care. Yeah. We, we saw that in action recently. Premier Smith has been talking tough with Ottawa, but when it came to the transfers of health care dollars back to Alberta, she signed the deal because otherwise, if she doesn't, well, they just won't transfer our own money back to us. And the NDP opposition say, look at that, Daniel Smith throwing away right. health care dollars. Yeah. We're all suffering. So the, these... Uh, Premiers out west are forced to, to dance to the tune of Central Canada, and uh, the right. system just won't won't bend. Yeah, and that's a fair point. You know, getting mad at that, uh, you know, a lion for being a carnivore or something like that is kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> a bad take. What what you ought to do is just like stay away from them because you're meat, right? Or or secede, if you will, from the lion. Like, don't go go near it because they're not going to change their nature just because you whine at them or or whinge at them or whatever. Uh, and maybe we should have that kind of uh, look at Ottawa. I mean, they're kind of a, a sociopathic machine. It, you know, that it, it's an institution, right? It doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have a conscience. It wants to grow and it wants to do that. It doesn't care if it does that at the expense of Albertan, certainly. Um, one of the things that struck at me in your book, and I'm like, why didn't I hear about this? Or maybe I haven't been paying close enough attention maybe it's all the pandemic stuff that that has been captivating my attention or the ufos or whatever's going on but i i completely missed the the thing that should have been a huge news story that you point out in your book that in 2022 uh we had another look at uh, at jurisdictions and seats and ridings in the legislature and the Quebec population had declined. Meanwhile, out here in the West, our population had increased. So it kind of would have made sense to maybe take a few seats out of Quebec, put them back, put them out here in Western Canada to reflect the changing demographics and population. But something else happened. Can you explain to me exactly what happened? Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, the, the way the numbers work is there was a formula. It's a pretty straightforward one that the, you re, you know do seat re redistribution based on the population changes uh, every five six years or eight years i'm not even sure what the terms are but one had come up and it, and yes because of natural migration the west was going to gain a few seats uh but quebec was going to lose one and this would not do the bloc quebecois and blanchet well hey again power to him standing up for right. his jurisdiction said no we're not putting up with that you don't you dare take a seat away from us and uh, basically put a motion through the house of commons to say you're going to make an exception for us and we're going to keep that seat even if our population doesn't warrant it and the thing was you know and it passed it passed very easily so we don't have we don't even have the rep by pop that we were supposed to the senate doesn't balance the regions and yeah. uh nor does the parliament and i know it's only one seat but that principle is a very big one right, and but it's a principle and, and and it's like basically in perpetuity from what i understand i mean you know quebec's population is likely to continue to decline given its policies Ours is likely to increase if we're allowed to have a little bit of freedom out here in prosperity. Um, so we're, we're, when do we get, get our say in, the, in this confederation? But Well, and that's part of what I think creates the true long-term uh, independent supporters and secessionists is when you look at what the conservatives did. We expect this of the liberals. We expect this of right. the NDP. But there was a great number of conservatives voted for that motion as well. Candace Bergen from Manitoba voted for that motion. Pierre Polyev found something else he had to do and was absent from the parliament the day when they voted on that. Yeah. Uh, virtually only a handful of them actually even voted against this. And that's what people got to realize. Again, that's it's the system. It's the machine. And the conservatives right. are going to screw you just as quickly as the liberals will. They just might feel a little bad about it when they do it. Right, right. Okay, well, let's let's kind of shift gears a little bit. We, we know we're getting a raw deal. This... Uh, what, what can we do about this? I mean, but look, maybe before we talk about what we can do about it, let's 
let's talk a little bit about uh, the differences and similarities between uh, Quebec secessionist movements and, and Western secessionist movement. What what's your take on it? Are they are they basically the same? Do they have the same grievances, or are they kind of built around different ideas? Uh, very different ideas. I mean, Quebec is it's very much more cultural, linguistic. Uh, a strong association, you know, with, with the Quebecois. That's always what it's been. I mean, they, their movement has been basically going since the War of 1812. And uh, they, they have it. It bonds them very tightly. Right. And uh, as I've said in the book as well, they're working on, they're still working towards it. Some people, if they think that Quebecers don't really want to go, they do. They do. They just know that they have to get the right circumstances to get into another referendum. That's why, as you said, they don't mind the population draining out as long as it's non-French population draining mm. up because if they can get that balance and that linguistic tie, they feel they don't care about the, the, the financial aspect or things like that, just as long as they can have their own French speaking nation. And there used right. to be a much stronger Catholic element among that as well. I, I don't think that's as much of a tie today as it was in, in the older days in the West. It's, it's definitely much more focused on uh, finances and, and individualism and freedoms. And right. uh, so it's a different thing. It, and that makes it more difficult for us. We don't have that right. that that you know tie that, that binds us quite like a language would. Uh, it's yeah. still just as strong an issue, but it is most definitely different from how it is in Quebec. Yeah, I mean the way someone described it to me once is that uh, Quebec secessionism is somewhat aspirational, right? Like they they have a target they're aiming at. It's like a positive aspiration in terms of we're proud of our culture. This is who we are, and this is who we proudly exert ourselves to be. And out here, it's just like leave us the hell alone. Like, it's kind of like the difference between going to a, uh, you know, like a church service or going or how like out here, it's a bunch of atheists saying, no, don't impose your dumb state religion on me. Uh, you know, it's kind of uh, that thing. So you're right. I think it makes it harder, harder to organize around that. You know, you don't see a lot of um, atheist churches popping up because they're kind of, it's kind of like herding cats. So, you know, libertarianism is, I think, similar in that way as well. It's like we have this attitudinal disposition of skepticism towards the state and the government. We say, no, we don't think you are have the right to do the things you're doing. Those claims are extraordinary, like screw off kind of thing. But our, our philosophy is all built around all what not to do. Don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Don't, you know, initiate force, respect property rights. But it doesn't tell us what to do, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know then, okay, don't do all those sins, but now where do I point my life? How do I live? What do I? And so we all are very different, diverse individuals, all have different things to do. That's not a, a really easy philosophy to kind of organize around. Uh, you know, because we're organizing around what not to do. And it's kind of like Western independence is like, well, we don't know what we want to do, but we definitely don't want that. We definitely don't want those guys telling us what to do. That's what we don't want. But what do we want? Right. And, and that makes it a little bit harder to organize. Yeah. And that's how I try to at least lay it out and define it a bit in the book and, and getting on to organizing. I mean, uh, you, you kind of hit on upon it too. And as a libertarian leader, you would know that we're yeah. talking about the worst herd of cats to try and hold together. <laughs> the, the second worst is a bunch of independence minded people. I mean, keep them right. in the same room for more than half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not going to happen. And we've seen these parties come and go. And I know I founded one. I ran it into an election. Right. We fell apart. Um, I, I took a part in other ones. And right now, I think there's about five different registered independence leading provincial parties in Alberta right now. And they're all mm. in the, the, the sub 1% ca- support category. I mean, the Wilders Independence Party was kind of getting along. And, and then all of a sudden, they blew up into infighting and then they've fallen off the map. We, we've got to stop 
spawning these parties. That's not the way it's going to have to work. Yeah. We're, we're going to have to work as individuals. The parties are an element, but you can't have an independence party. It's just not going to work. We, we, we've done it enough times. We should have right. figured that out by now. Right. So I think in the book you talk about, um, uh, you know, it almost seems like spreading the ideas, uh, getting, getting, you know, um, a movement going. I mean, ultimately it's going to have to be whichever government, whichever party or government we have in power, that's going to have to lead the way on this. We have the the uh, legislative tool called the Clarity Act that we can use to secede if we want. And let's just walk through that for a second. It's it's fifty uh, percent plus one at, at least on a very clear question uh, uh, given to Alberta Burtons, a clear, very clear referendum question to separate. Um, and, and then there's a few other things I want to talk about in that Clarity Act as well. But is it is it uh, total number of voters or just the people that vote in the referendum that you need the 50 plus one is that, that that wasn't really clear to me yeah as far as i know it is the total number of voters uh though i mean that could be one of the ways people could argue against an outcome if it was say just a 51 or 55 percent I, I sort of say that in the book too if they yeah. want to go and you, you want it to happen it should be solid we're talking 60 yeah. percent. You, you've got to be sure that there's not ambiguity with this right I do believe from my interpretation that that means the 50% plus one of those who came out to vote. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure that, uh, uh, other people against it, you know, other parties against it might argue, uh, a different interpretation of that. Um, and then as I read the act, you know, it, 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 it leaves me a little bit crestfallen because there's some other things in there about, um, about significant engagement and hearing, um, those, jurisdictions or people that have a claim against secession so it strikes me that you know maybe first nations would maybe a neighboring province would uh, i don't know who else would sovereign citizens or something like that i don't know who else <laughs> who else would have a claim against it but it seems to me once you clear that one really giant hurdle of getting the referendum done they have different ways of screwing you out of seceding anyways what's your take on that yeah, it could end up a lot like Brexit, where, you know, you had the vote, but the process of actually getting there just turns into a, a muddied, mired mess. Uh, I, again, I mean, I would hope ideally, if and when the time comes, it's been a very good, solid, strong vote. But still, if right. you have 40% of people voted against, that's a significant chunk of the population. If it is First Nations, I do address that in the book, but it's still sticky. Absolutely. But the main thing is, if you had 60% of the province vote, this province or Saskatchewan or wherever for that matter, saying we want out we've had it you've just sent a whiplash through this confederation like it hasn't seen yeah. since 1867 like we might have finally the recipe though where the other provinces will come to the table and say okay maybe we can rewrite the agreement maybe we can finally it's gotten too far this is the point we can get serious not meach lake not charlottetown we're actually going to redraft some stuff and change it Right, because that's what we really need in the end. But I don't see any other means to get those changes done until, at the very least, a positive vote has come, and possibly I still fought, fighting all the way through a few years after the vote to an actual secession. Right. But the first step is getting that vote. Yeah, and and um, you know what what are some of the lessons we can learn from other, uh, uh, I guess, secessions or Brit? You, you talk about Brexit. Uh, I think in the book you mentioned um, Norway and Sweden. Um, what uh, what are some of the other, I guess, historical examples? I mean, obviously, we have our neighbors to the south who seceded from us and the British monarchs, I guess, so to speak, uh, through revolution. That seems like, you know, it, it would be better not to engage in bloodshed if we can help it. 
um, what are what are some lessons we can learn from other places? About yeah, I think the, the the violent approach. I mean, I don't think it's in us out here. I haven't yeah. seen indications of it, and, and I'm happy for that. That's fine. Uh, you know, the FLQ failed in Quebec. Uh, yeah. You know, if anything, it unified the country more with the, the horrors of what they did, and the American Revolution had a much better basis and need than than at least more immediate one than than we do. Yeah. Uh, but lessons to be learned is just that it can be done. It can be done with a developed modern country. So. Uh, Sweden and Norway did do it. I, I use that example, even though that was over 100 years ago. It was through referendum. There was a lot of hurt feelings at the time. Uh, it was tense. But since then, they are a couple of the most united yet independent countries you could imagine. They have open borders. They they are a very tight relationship, but still maintain their independence from each other. It can work. Some people say, oh, you know, BC would never talk to Alberta. No, I, I don't believe that for a second. Yeah. Uh, and then a more recent one, uh, Slovakia and the Czech Republic. Uh, they call that one the Velvet Revolution. And, you know, and it was kind of phased out over time, and, and the two split. They had, had been held together by the Soviet Union, so it was kind of an artificial union to begin with. Uh, right. But still, there's a lot of overlap in those countries as well. And uh, they, they're managing. They're, they're still close right. with each other. They're not fighting with each other. They're not warring, but they've, they've, they've maintained their independence, and they're valuing it. Yeah, I mean, I, I might not like my neighbor very much if he lived under my roof, right? And and uh, we had like different values and kind of, you know, didn't get along and we, we'd rub each other the wrong way after a while. But the fact that we have a fence between us, he goes to his house, I come go to mine, we shake hands, we work together on fences and, and neighborhood projects. We get along just famously, even though we're not living under the same roof. And I have to believe that uh, there's there's something to that idea of strong fences make good neighbors or something like that. Well, yeah, and I think part of the issue is authoritarians feel the way to bring about unity is to crack down and mash everybody together, is to force right. it, to fight it. And I, I believe that's like sticking you know two polar magnets together. You, you can fight it, but they're still going to want to push apart. Right. The, the irony of it is the way to unity is to decentralize the power so you can have the differences within the regions and still be close to each other. I mean, I, I do I go a lot into Switzerland, of course, which is a small nation with 26 cantons, four official languages. If you, if you right. believe decentralized authoritarian, you'd think, well, that country should have shattered into 26 pieces 30 years ago. But actually, there's no such thing as a secessionist movement in, in Switzerland. Right. And it's landlocked and it's, you know, you go through in the book, all the, all the different arguments against secession, you know, from being, we would be landlocked to, um, you know, how would we engage in national defense to, you know, all, all that we, we would be um, economically disadvantaged because we wouldn't be as big a, a negotiating block or something like that. So you, you kind of dismantle all these arguments in your book. Um, OK, let's get back to what's the path forward. Then we're, we were convinced, Corey, that we, we this is the path we want to embark on. This is a worthy cause. What do we, we, we got to recruit Chris Sky to come to Alberta and lead a, a movement of civil disobedience and uh, rally the troops and just plant the flag and say, this is Chris Sky land now. And we no longer recognize Ottawa or what? Yeah, well, I mean, I, that's what I don't want or see is <laughs> yeah. particularly Mr. Sky, uh, though he's a colorful character. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, don't wait for a messiah. It's not going to be a person who's going to come and lead it there. That This book is... Uh, I, I frame it as a training manual. It, you know, not everybody is a political activist lunatic like myself. That, that's why I give those answers, because if they're doing the water cooler discussion or this family dinner discussion, they don't necessarily have a ready answer to the whataboutisms that start coming about yes. against it. Uh, so this helps train them so they can answer rationally and not get into a fight, because I, I think we're going to win that support on the ground. We are going to win it yeah. 
at the family gathering, at the water cooler, at work, at the hockey game, all sorts of places, at the bar, over time, and 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 win the individuals. And the other part is we've got to get active. I mean, uh, only two percent of the country typically has a membership in any political party. I mean, that's that's pathetic. But I mean, part of it is nobody knows how. I never got taught in school. How do you even join a party? How do you take out a membership? How does a nomination work? What's a constituency association? I, I take that for granted because I hang around with a bunch of partisans all the time. But most people, they don't have any idea what that is. And, and nobody told them. And it can even be intimidating. Like, you know, you don't want to join a group if you don't even know what's involved. So there's a large chapter on how to join a party and how to take part, whether yes. just as a member who goes to meetings or whether you want to join the board and, and really get involved. Right. And that's what I'm hoping. Build that a stronger party support and get more people working on the ground, making a rational case. You know, having F Trudeau flags flying on hockey sticks on a truck is very personally satisfying, but you're not winning any converts <laughs> that way. Yeah. You've got to get on the ground and, and, and start converting people one by one. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I mean, that that to me is, you know, if we if we follow the idea that government is kind of downstream from culture or ideas that culture has, uh, you know, and politicians kind of get in front of the parade, regardless of who created that parade and which direction it's going, it's the politician's job to get in front of it. Then what we have to do is create some movement, a parade going in one direction, pushing towards um, sovereignty. And, and I like that you don't kind of lay out a this is step one, two, three, and four, what we have to do. Uh, it's kind of like, listen, arm yourself with knowledge, know how to uh, be persuasive and talk about these issues. And then wherever you go, whether it's in a fringe political party, whether it's in a mainstream political party, whether it's at the dinner cooler, whether it's, um, you know, starting a, a book club or, a, a, or maybe just even a groundswell movement uh, where you're going around, you know, speaking about sovereignty, wherever you're at, that knowledge is going to help you. And, um, and quite frankly, we need people all across the board. You know, like I, I see a real value in having people in the UCP to, uh, pushing towards sovereignty kind of quietly behind closed doors, of course, because if you're a respectable politician and want to stay in power, you can't say these things out loud very easily. You have to be very careful, but I still want those people in there. Let the fringe political parties, you know, like in my case, the Libertarian Party, that was my job. It was to, to clear the Overton window, remove some brush, make it safer for the more mainstream parties. And, you know, the Libertarian Party kind of made it safe for Maxime Bernier to run as a Libertarian in the CPC party and, and create a quasi-Libertarian, pseudo-Libertarian party called the PPC that uh, did some positive things in, in that direction. But unless you have those fringe parties kind of willing to go out there, sacrifice themselves and cut that. So, so wherever, whatever, you know, guys look at your own situation, look at your own kind of personality and what, what you're attracted to and Hey, go wherever you can, wherever you're comfortable, wherever you think you can be most influential and, and get this book. And the, the book is called uh, the Sovereignist handbook. Uh, charting the course for Western independence. Its uh, author is Corey Morgan. You can get it at Amazon uh, and and other bookstores. Corey, anywhere else? Uh, anything else you want to talk about? Where, where can they get the book? Where can they follow you? Sure. Well, yeah, and uh, we sell directly at uh, gvlbooks.com. So I mean, if GVL a person books, wants to go that right. route, uh, but of course, if you got a good deal with Amazon Prime, you can save on some shipping. Get on there, search it out. You can find it, and the digital version is on there, of course, too. Uh, yeah. Versus, uh, 
the, the hard copy and well just uh, as for following me i'm pretty easy to find you know just google cory morgan and you'll see either somebody writing yeah. on why i'm an arsehole or <laughs> or uh You'll see I have to say your, your your Twitter account is one of the more entertaining ones out there that I follow. So definitely give Corey Morgan a follow. I will I'll, I'll put those links uh, down below, guys, uh, to to his book and uh, to his Twitter account. And Corey, thanks for for uh, coming on the show and talking about this really important uh, topic. Oh, always great to talk to you, Tim. Beautiful.